0: Let's open up our Bibles now to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Here's what's going on in our church, people. The Lord is giving us a year in the Old Testament together. And maybe more, but at least a year. This is very exciting for us at Reality Carpinteria because in our three and a half year existence, we have not done a Sunday morning study on the Old Testament yet. I've taught some classes on Bible prophecy that had a lot to do with the Old Testament. We did a Wednesday night service on Hebrews 11, obviously knit into the Old Testament and some other things, but we have not yet journeyed through a book together on Sunday mornings from the Old Testament. This is a year that we're going to do it. Next week, we're going to start in the book of Joshua, the sixth book in the Bible. It is an incredible book. It is all about laying hold of practically what God has already accomplished positionally. It's about when the children of Israel finally cross the Jordan after wandering for so many years and come lay hold of the land and the promises of God. And we're going to grow so powerfully together uh, as we do that. But before we get into that book Next week, I wanted to give us today sort of an introduction to the Old Testament. Since we're going to dive into the Old Testament, not only will we be studying on Sunday mornings, but on Tuesday mornings we have the precept Bible study. They're going to be doing Numbers and then Deuteronomy. And then in February we'll start teaching a class, make it available to you guys, which will be a Old Testament survey. So sort of seeing the flow of history as God has worked with humanity. So Before we dive in as a body to the Old Testament, I just wanted to give you an introduction to it. Because unfortunately, a lot of Christians, it's sort of a mystery to them they haven't spent much time in the Old Testament. They're not exactly sure what it's about. They think, after all, isn't it old? So why do I care? I mean, did the New Testament replace the Old Testament? And I'm a New Testament Christian. I'm all about Jesus and it's before Jesus. So who cares really? And it's really hard to understand. And there's a lot of strange stuff in there. And I, I don't really know what it's about anyway. So I don't really read it. Unfortunately, that is a mindset of much of Christianity. So I want to dispel some of those thoughts for you. I want to sort of break down the Old Testament a little bit and and make it simple for you and give you a little bit of insight in a context from which to approach it that will help you understand it. But the first thing that I want to communicate to you this morning about the Old Testament is that the New Testament ascribes tremendous value to the Old Testament. The New Testament ascribes tremendous value to the Old Look here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It starts talking in the first few verses about some Old Testament stories. Moses and the exodus and the wandering in the wilderness. And then it says in verse 6. Now these things happened as examples for us. That we should not crave evil things as they also craved. And then look at verse 11. Now, these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Now, we are living in the last days, very clear from the Bible, the end of the ages has come upon us. And the New Testament says that these Old Testament historical accounts are for our instruction. That there's something to be gleaned from them. There's something to be learned. There's something that's going to impact the way that we know the Lord and love the Lord and live for the Lord. They were written down for our instruction. Now I want you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3 if you would. We'll make it a little more clear for us. 2 Timothy chapter 3. By the way, all the T's are together in the New Testament. There's first and 2 Thessalonians, and then 1 and 2 Timothy, and then Titus. So find a T somewhere in your New Testament. And then find 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, we start reading in verse 16. It says, all scripture is inspired by God. Now, whenever the New Testament refers to scripture or Jesus refers to Scripture, or the Apostle Paul, or anybody else. Every single time, except for one, where it's referring to the writings of Paul, it is referring to the Old Testament. Because at the time of the writing of the New Testament, it wasn't collected yet, it hadn't become canon yet, it wasn't known as the New Testament. And so, when these things were being written down, or Jesus, or when the disciples referred to Scripture, they're always referring to the Old Testament. So when it says all Scripture here, it's the Old Testament. Now, of course, we know that the New Testament has also become Scripture, so we're aware of that. But in the context, all Scripture, the Old Testament, is inspired by God. That word inspired in the Greek means literally God-breathed. It is God-breathed. It is not the work of men, as people would want to say today, as people often say. It is the work of God, and the Old Testament is the very words of God. Keep a finger here. And go to 2 Peter. Okay, Head toward the book of Revelation, toward the back of your Bible. And go to 2 Peter. It's after Hebrews. It's before Revelation. Keep your finger in 2 Timothy. We're going to 2 Peter real quick. Speaking about Scripture being God-breathed. It says in 2 Peter, chapter 1. Are you there? Yeah? Yeah? Second Peter chapter one, verse 20. But know, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation or literally unloosing. It doesn't come forth from man. It's not subject to the opinion of man. It says in verse 21, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. There we see the authorship of the Bible, both the old and the new Testament. The author of the Bible is the Holy Spirit, God himself. He used men to pen the Bible. Just like God wants to use your life. God used men to pen the Bible. You won't be writing the Bible. It's finished. But, but God always uses people. And so God is the author of scripture, but he used men to pen it, did it in a really neat way, preserve the experience of men, you know, and uh, uh, their, their, their personalities and their characteristics come through in the writing. God is using the person, but it is the very words of God. Notice it says that men were moved by the Holy Spirit. That word moved in the Greek is interesting. It's used in Acts chapter 27, round about verse 15, where Paul encounters a storm while on a ship. And they were overcome by the storm. And it says that the storm directed them wherever it would. The storm was just in control. Same word used there. For the Holy Spirit of God moved men. The Word of God is God-breathed every single word of it that is on your lap right now. Now, turn back to 2 Timothy. We pick it up in verse 16. All Scripture is inspired by God, God God-breathed, and profitable. Okay? It's good for, look, what is it good for? Okay, the Old Testament is good for teaching reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Those four things. Teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, righteousness. The Old Testament and all of Scripture is profitable for the Christian for those things. Let me make those things very simple for you. Teaching. The Old Testament will teach us what is right. Reproof. The Old Testament will teach us what is wrong. Correction. The Old Testament and the New will teach us how to get right. Right. Training for righteousness, the Old Testament and the New, will teach us how to stay right. So all Scripture is God-breathed. And it is profitable or useful for knowing what is right, knowing what is wrong, getting right, and staying right. Now that has an effect in the life of the Christian. Verse 17. It says, In order that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. Now that's the desire of every Christian. Amen? Amen. I mean, somewhere tucked away in the heart of every Christian is a desire to be used by God, to be ready for what God wants to do in your life and through your life. And the way that that happens is when we dive into the word of God, man, there's no shortcuts in Christianity. Don't you wish there were, there's just no shortcuts in Christianity and God has a plan for your life. He wants to use you and it's greater than you could ever think possible. But what that hinges on is your involvement with the Word of God. Because that's where you will learn right from wrong. That's where you'll learn how to get right and how to walk right. And when you learn those things, as we journey through the Bible and the Old Testament together this year, then you will become adequate and equipped for every good work. And you'll see God use you and move through you. And it's the most incredible thing. But to a certain degree, it depends upon your involvement with the Word of God. Not because it's performance-oriented in the heart of God. But like anybody else for any other job, you need to be equipped for that. Amen? Amen. Amen. And too often, Christians in that pursuit ignore the Old Testament. But it's profound to realize that most of the Bible is the Old Testament. In the New Testament, there's 27 books. In the Old, 39 books. In the New Testament, there's 260 chapters. In the Old, there's 929 chapters. In the New Testament, there's 7,959 verses. But in the Old Testament, 23,214. The New Testament has 181,253 words. The Old Testament, 593,493 words. When you do the math on that, that means that 76% of the Bible is Old Testament. Wow, think about that. 70%, 76% of God's word to you. You can't ignore that, Christian. 76%. I mean, Mark and Laura, you guys are married. Mark, imagine if you ignored 76% of what Laura said to you. Brother, you would be in trouble you can't do that. You cannot do that. And yet in our relationship with Jesus Christ, we often see that Christians are ignoring 76% of the word of God. Not this year. Amen. Not this year. We're going to read it together in the whole thing. So I want to simplify it uh, for you a little bit and just kind of break down the old Testament into sections. As I said, there's 39 books, and those generally fall into four sections for us that help us keep it straight. The Law, History, Poetry, and Prophecy. Four sections. The Law, History, Poetry, and Prophecy. Now open to Genesis, the very first uh, book in your Bible. Go to Genesis. Genesis. And I'm I'm just going to kind of go through these books and and just give you a brief overview of what they're about. And and then you just kind of flip through as we're saying these books, just so you become familiar now where they're at and get some of the dust out of the Bible there and just start moving through these as I say them. Um, The first five books are called the Law. Okay? It's referred to as the Law. Jesus referred to the first five books as the law. It's sometimes called the law of Moses or the writings of Moses. Or they might simply say, Moses said. And they're referring to the first five books of the Bible. When Jesus or any other Jew in the first century wanted to refer to the whole Old Testament, they would say the law and the prophets. Sort of a summary uh, statement of the law, the history, the poetry, and the prophets. So when the New Testament refers to the law, It's generally that which is found in the first five books, sometimes called the Pentateuch, sometimes referred to as the Torah, though that's often, it's a Hebrew thing, but that's often used for the whole thing as well. But in the first five books, we find Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. In the first five books of the Bible, we have the creation account. We have the birth of the nations and we have the birth of the nation, the nation of Israel. We have the story of the nation being brought out of Egypt. The Exodus. You'll read about it in a few months in the book of Exodus. We have that there. And then we have the wandering of the children of Israel in the wilderness. Incredible insights to be gleaned for the Christian life. And and, and then we have the law being given at Mount Sinai to Moses. The oral law and the written law was given to him. We call it often the Ten Commandments. And there were more. There's 613 commandments in the law. But the law given to them. And that's recorded for us in Leviticus and Numbers. And then we have Deuteronomy, which is just before the children of Israel enter into the promised land after wandering for those 40 years. And so you have the first five books, the law. The law basically has three components to it. The moral law, the ceremonial law, and the judicial law, and we'll talk about those in a little bit later on in this message. Then we get to the history books, and it starts with Joshua that we'll start studying next week. And in Joshua, they move into the promised land, finally there, experiencing the promises of God and taking the land. And then we have the book of Judges, where judges were ra- raised up in Israel to lead the people. Then we have that wonderful book of Ruth. And then we have first and second Samuel, where King David is introduced to us. And then we have 1 Kings and 2 Kings where we learn about the good kings and the bad kings and uh, Israel being faithful to the Lord and being unfaithful to the Lord and the way that he dealt with them. And we have parallel accounts of that in 1 and 2 Chronicles. And we also have there in those history books the experience of Israel being exiled. First by the Assyrians in about 722 B.C. And then by the Babylonians in about 586 B.C. And when we come to the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, it is about the children of Israel returning from exile, which they were in because of their disobedience. God now proving himself faithful, then returning from exile back to the promised land and rebuilding Jerusalem and rebuilding the temple. Incredible accounts found in Ezra and Nehemiah. And then, of course, we have Esther. And then you move into the books that are known as poetry. They're much more than poetry, but that's the form generally that they take. So that's the division that they fall into. Then you have uh, the book of Job, which is the oldest book in the Old Testament. You have Psalms. Listen to me. If you're bummed out a lot, read the book of Psalms. You're going to meet David. David was a husband. David was a father. David was king of Israel worship leader in Israel, he was a musician, a singer, songwriter, he's the one who killed Goliath, he killed bears, he killed lions, he was also an adulterer and a murderer. And you'll discover his love relationship with the God of the universe, and it's going to be incredible encouragement to those of you that often find yourself downcast, depressed even. You'll find David hid, hiding in a cave, despairing for his very life, feeling like everybody has forsaken him and just feeling like at any moment moment, King Saul was going to catch up with him and take his life. You'll hear him cry out to God, God, where are you? What are you doing? Why aren't you here with me? And then you'll see God begin to minister to him and you'll see his heart change from despair to praise and these beautiful songs of worship come forth from his life. There's other ones, there's uh, uh, Asaph is another psalmist, and and Korah, I I recommend that you read three to five psalms a day, just the love relationship you have with the Lord will blossom as you go through those, and there'll be a great discouragement to those of you that struggle with sadness, and then we have Proverbs, if you're dumb, read Proverbs, I mean dumb like practically dumb, you know what I mean, like you're always making dumb decisions, if you need some wisdom, read the book of Proverbs, there's 31 chapters, you could read one every day of the month guaranteed wisdom if you read the book of proverbs guaranteed wisdom you will glean wisdom and you'll begin to make better decisions and know better the will of god And of ecclesiastes which is wonderful solomon the wisest man in the world who had everything that he ever wanted pursued it all didn't hold anything back from himself says at the end of it all i had everything and it is all just a waste and striving after the wind if you're not loving and serving god Everything else is meaningless. So many of us never learn that lesson. We go after position and possessions and we pursue all sorts of passions and time and time again, they leave us empty. Solomon wrote thousands of years ago that the answer is in knowing and loving and serving your God. And then we have Song of Solomon, which is a love story, which is quite graphic. In fact, to this day, Jews aren't allowed to read it until they reach a mature age. And it's a picture of Jesus Christ in the church. It's fascinating. There's much to be learned about marriage and relationships and the relationship of the Lord to the church. And then finally, the book of prophecy, the books of prophecy, excuse me, 17 of them. They're divided into two subsections, the major prophets and the minor prophets. Now the minor prophets are not called the minor prophets because they have minor messages or they weren't important. It's just because they're shorter in length. The major prophets are those longer books, Isaiah. Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Big books of prophecy. And then we have the minor prophets after that in order. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and the only Italian prophet, Malachi. Last book in the Old Testament. Just kidding. He was Hebrew. It's Malachi. Not Malachi. Please don't say Malachi. 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 And there's the Old Testament broken up for you into those sections. And that is 76% of the Word of God. 76% of the Word of God. And guys, the Old Testament is so incredibly rich. It is so incredibly rich. Just real fast, go to Hebrews 11 if you would. Way back now, toward Revelation, very near to the end of the Bible. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, we have that thing which we refer to as a hall of faith. These awesome stories of faith, and they're all taken from the Old Testament. And the author of Hebrews doesn't describe them to us. He just alludes to them or mentions them. And what the author of Hebrews is working with is an assumption that the Christian reading the book of Hebrews will have a knowledge, some background wealth of the Old Testament. So that when, for example, verse 4, he says, by faith, Abel, the, the New Testament Christian is going to know the story of Cain and Abel from Genesis, which you guys read this week in your one-year Bible. When he says in verse 5, by faith, Enoch, there's this assumption that the Christian is going to know who Enoch is because he's read the Old Testament. When it says in uh, chapter 7, by faith, Noah, well, most people know Noah. A, uh, By faith, Abraham. And then what about verse 11, by faith Sarah, do you know the story of Sarah and Abraham and the incredible things that unfolded there? And it goes on, verse 20, by faith Isaac, 21, by faith Jacob, 22, by faith Joseph, it mentions them assuming and rightly expecting that the Christian will will have an understanding of these incredible stories because they're written for our instruction. As an example to us, there's much to be learned and gleaned in these things in the Old Testament. By faith Moses, in in verse 23. Verse 27, by faith they left Egypt, speaking of the Exodus. Verse 29, by faith they passed through the Red Sea. Verse 30, by faith the walls of Jericho came down. 31, by faith Rahab will meet her in the book of Joshua. And then in verse 32... The author of Hebrews says, and what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David, and Samuel, and the prophets, and on and on and on. There is this assumption by the Lord, who is the ultimate author of scripture, that the New Testament Christian will know these stories, that will have read them, that will have meditated upon them. Church, this is our year to do it to read them, to know them, to be instructed by them. We cannot, as Christians, ignore the Old Testament. It is so rich. It's the Bible that Jesus read. It's the one that he refers to. Same with the Apostle Paul and the rest of the apostles and disciples. It's the Bible that they read. It's where we find some of the just most beautiful passages of Scripture. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That's O.T., Lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways, acknowledge the Lord and he'll make your path straight. That's Proverbs 3. Who could forget Isaiah 30, 18? The Lord waits on high to have compassion on you. God's father heart revealed so wonderfully in the Old Testament. People think, oh, it's a different God in the Old Testament. He's mean and nasty and killing everyone, And then it's a nice God in the New Testament. That's not true. Man, you would never read the Old Testament and think that. Yes, there's a the righteousness of God and the judgment of God, but there is the wonderful, merciful, compassionate heart of God revealed. And we're told in Psalm 34 Old Testament, taste and see that the Lord is good. So much of the Lord is to be tasted in the pages of the Old Testament. And what we find there and how it connects to the New Testament is in this way. A quote from, for you from a book, Old Testament Survey. It says the Old Testament is the account of the ways in which God has worked. It is a summary of what he has demanded. It is a record of his preparation for Christ's coming. It is the best canvas on which to catch the picture of God's dealings with the human family. You hear that? The best canvas to catch the picture of God's dealings with the human family through the centuries. In short, it is an indispensable foundation on which the New Testament is built. To understand the Old Testament as Christian scripture, one must see it through the eyes of Jesus and his apostles. And so the Old and the New connect, obviously, and, and specifically in the person of Jesus Christ. And it's been said what commenced in the Old Testament was completed in Christ in the New Testament. And it's interesting that we find that much of the New Testament is actually made up of the Old Testament. The book of Revelation, a very high percentage of it is direct quotation from the Old Testament or allusion to parts thereof. In fact, I have this quote for you about um, uh, the Old and the New. It says, The influence of the Old Testament is seen throughout the New Testament. The New Testament writers included approximately 250 express Old Testament quotations. And if one includes indirect or partial quotations, the number jumps to more than 1,000. It is clear that the writers of the New Testament were concerned with demonstrating the continuity between the Old Testament scriptures and the faith they proclaimed. They were convinced that in Jesus, the Old Testament promises Had been fulfilled. In the previous quote that I gave you, it said, To understand the Old Testament, one must see it through the eyes of Jesus and his apostles. So let's talk about Jesus in the Old Testament. But before that, let's talk about how Jesus viewed the Old Testament. The Bible is attacked every day in secular venues. Secular schools, at the workplace, and so-called Christian schools attack the Bible and the inerrancy thereof every day. But, but no portion is more attacked than the Old Testament. People are often mocked for believing the creation count, for believing the account of the flood, for believing in literal six-day creation, for, for believing about the genesis of the nations and Israel and so on and so forth. You're mocked and you're written off. But let me ask you, What was Jesus's view of the Old Testament? Well, in the New Testament, we have numerous specific citations that Jesus makes of Old Testament persons and events, which reveal what Jesus thought about the authenticity and the historical character of the Old Testament. For example, Jesus personally and explicitly confirmed that Adam and Eve were created by God. In Matthew 19, 4, Jesus said that God created Adam and Eve. It's not popular to believe that in the world today, but you know what? I don't want to be popular with the world. I want to be right with Jesus. Jesus personally and explicitly said that God created Adam and Eve. Secondly, in Matthew 23, 35, Jesus confirmed that Abel killed Cain. This is not some fable or story. It's a historical account. In Luke 17, 27, Jesus confirmed that a flood destroyed the world during Noah's time. In Luke 20, 37, Jesus confirmed that God really did speak to Moses through a burning bush. That it's not a fairy tale or a veggie tale. It's the real thing. In Luke chapter 4, verse 25, Jesus confirmed that Elijah performed miracles. In Matthew 12, 40, Jesus confirmed that Jonah was three days in the belly of the fish. In Matthew 24, 15, Jesus confirmed and personally, explicitly said that Daniel, the prophet, made true predictions. Now, What is very significant about the teachings of Christ concerning the Old Testament is that they force us to choose between the critics of the Bible and Jesus Christ himself. Because virtually everything that the critics deny as being authentic about the Old Testament, Jesus Christ confirmed about it in the New Testament. Almost point by point, everything that you will hear from secular society today or liberal Christianity... That they deny about the authority and authenticity and historicity of the Old Testament was what Jesus went out of his way to confirm explicitly. You know, many critics today, they don't believe that Daniel could have possibly written the book of Daniel. They believe it must have been written by somebody else and at a time much later than it claimed to be written. Why do they claim that? Because the prophecies are so perfectly fulfilled in it. It is so perfect in its predictive prophecy that they look at it with their finite minds and say, there's no way that that uh, was written by Daniel. It must have been written afterwards and only pretends to be prophecy. Okay, wait a minute. I understand that you can't get your little head about it. But Jesus Christ himself said that Daniel wrote the book of Daniel and that he Gave the prophecies from the Lord. You know what? When it comes to critic or Christ, I'm going with Christ. I don't know about you. I'm going with Jesus Christ. And they say this story about Jonah and the fish. This this is impossible. This never happens. Well, granted to you, it's not normal. Like I don't go to the beach every day. Well, look at that cat getting spit up by the fish, man. (laughs) It's not normal. But is the Bible normal? Is our God normal? It's not normal. No, it's not. But Jesus Christ said it was true. And so on and so forth. Jesus explicitly, personally confirming what the critics today claim to be false. Jesus said is true. And the dilemma is this. For every Christian, you either accept the authenticity and authority of the Old Testament or you cast doubt on the integrity of Jesus Christ. In plain language, either the Old Testament is the word of God or Christ is not the Son of God. Either it is true that the Old Testament is God's word or we cannot believe Christ's words. And if we believe that Jesus taught the truth, then the Old Testament is a historically accurate and divinely authoritative word of God, period. Period. Jesus said it was. Now, if you read Jesus' statements, that conclusion is inescapable. There's no question in anybody's mind who has a brain that Jesus confirmed these things in the Old Testament. He said, he referenced them. I gave them to you. But critics still refusing to believe came up with a theory. And I've heard this theory taught on a local so-called Christian campus. They came up with this theory. It's called the accommodation theory. Basically what they say is this, is that jesus wasn't actually verifying those old testament stories as being true he was just accommodating himself to what the jews thought to be true during that time he wasn't confirming them he was merely accommodating himself not wanting to start a conflict with the jews wait a minute. Jesus, Jesus, one who accommodates people, if he was into accommodating people, the Jews wouldn't have cried out, crucify him. This is asinine. You've got to be kidding me. The accommodation theory, Jesus was just accommodating himself to the popular Jewish beliefs at the time. Come on. That theory simply does not hold weight when we look at the historical figure of Jesus Christ. When we look at the historical figure of Jesus Christ, we find that he dealt with error. That he was far from an accommodator. He was rather a forthright rebuker of both error and superfluous religious tradition. For example, in the Sermon on the Mount. Six different times, Jesus corrected false interpretations of the Old Testament by using phrases such as, you have heard it, but I say to you. He was dealing with the false ideas they had about interpreting the Old Testament. He didn't accommodate himself to their false ideas to avoid conflict. He said, you've heard it said, but I'm telling you the way it is. Secondly, in Matthew 15, Jesus rebuked the Jews who followed the tradition of men rather than the commandment of God. He didn't acquiesce. He didn't accommodate. He didn't say, well, let's not get into a big problem here. He rebuked them. Thirdly, on other occasions, Jesus told them plainly in Matthew twenty-two twenty-nine, 29, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. He didn't have a problem telling people they are wrong when they were. Fourthly, the Jewish rabbi Nicodemus was rebuffed by Jesus for not understanding the truth of the Old Testament in John 3.10. He said, you are the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? He didn't accommodate himself to Nicodemus' error. And finally, in Matthew 23, we have one of the most severe denunciations of error to be found anywhere. Jesus there calls the religious leaders blind guides and blind fools and says, woe to you, over and over again. How can you read the New Testament, or any other documents, and see Jesus as one who accommodated himself to error, to be popular? If that were true, they would not have nailed him to a cross. And so you see, these facts utterly destroy the so-called accommodation theory, so popular in liberal Christian circles. It's very clear Jesus was not one to accommodate. What is also very clear is that Jesus taught that the Old Testament was both authentic and historical. Now, he taught that. But what is interesting is that Jesus reserved the right for himself to then interpret the Old Testament. He pronounced very clearly that it was authentic and historical. But the interpretation... He took the authority to give it. And, and here's how he interpreted the Old Testament. John five thirty nine, Jesus said, you search the scriptures and it is these that bear witness of me. Speaking of the Old Testament, he interpreted it for the Jews in the first century. He said, the entirety of that book is all about me from beginning to end. In fact, in Luke 24, he was on the road to Dem- uh, Emmaus, excuse me, after the resurrection with those two dejected men who were leaving Jerusalem. And we read about that account it says, and beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, Jesus explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. There's the interpretation of the Old Testament. It points to and it reveals Jesus Christ. Hebrews ten seven, the Lord says, In the volume of the book it is written of me. So as we move into a year in the Old Testament together as a church, I don't want anybody to think, oh, man, we're not going to talk about Jesus. Brother, the whole book is about Jesus. Turn to Matthew chapter 5, if you would. Matthew chapter 5. We'll see what Jesus had to say about the Old Testament here in Matthew chapter 5. By the way, this was in Friday's one-year Bible reading. Matthew chapter 5. So it's very cool that stuff that we're reading together is already coming up in our sermons. That's not contrived. I didn't try to do that. I mean, this is really makes sense to be in the sermon. And we read it together on Friday in our one year Bible reading. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 17, Jesus speaking. He says, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Now, as I said earlier, when Jesus says law and the prophets or any Jew in the first century or even now, when a Jew says that, it's referring to the Old Testament, okay? That's a Jewish way of saying the whole Old Testament, the law and the prophets. So Jesus says, don't think that I've come to abolish the Old Testament, the scriptures they had then. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And we'll mention how he fulfilled that in just a moment. But look what he says next in verse 18, very interesting. He says, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. What is interesting here is that Jesus does put an expiration date on the Old Testament. Did you catch that? It does have an expiration date. He said there, until heaven and earth pass away. Now there is a time where heaven and earth will pass away. It's spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. It's spoken of in Revelation chapter 21, where there is a new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. And Peter speaks about it in 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, about this known world melting away with intense heat. There is coming a time in the distant future after the millennial kingdom, where there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And apparently that then signals the expiration date for the Old Testament. Things are new. It's different. Interesting, though, that Jesus says in the book of John about his own words, he says this, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. There's no expiration date on the direct words of Jesus Christ. Isn't that interesting? But you see, the Old Testament hasn't expired yet. So we're still still supposed to be involved in it. It says that very explicitly, Jesus does in verse 19. He says, whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and so teaches others shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of God. What is your view of the Old Testament? Are you great or least in the kingdom of God? What about the teachers that you know? Where do they stand? with regards to what Jesus said. Now, back to verse 17, where Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. Now, as I said earlier, three basic subsections to the law. You have the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the judicial law. The moral law was, you know, the basic do's and don'ts. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt honor thy mother and father. There's 613 of them in the Old Testament. The ceremonial law are the sacrifices that we read about in uh, Leviticus and Numbers and other places, all those sacrifices and what the priests did in the services in the temple, the religious life of Israel, the ceremonial law. And then the judicial law was where God set forth the proper penalties for when somebody went against his word. And you will find when you read the Old Testament that they are really super gnarly. False prophets were to be killed. Someone found not to be a virgin on their wedding night, they were to be stoned. The adulterer was to be killed. The sorcerer, the witch, was to be killed. Now, here's how Jesus fulfills this. We'll start first with the judicial law. We don't kill witches anymore when we find them. They're in our community. They've visited our church. I know who they are. But we don't kill them. I've had many people sit in my office who have confessed to me their adultery and asked for prayer. I pray for them. I don't kill them. I've had some false prophets visit our church, chased them off, didn't kill them. Because Jesus fulfilled the judicial law when he took the penalty of sin upon himself on the cross. And he became the propitiation, the sacrifice that satisfied the righteous standard of God. And so now instead of the immediate death penalty, when someone errs, there is the grace and the forgiveness and the newness through Jesus Christ. You see, he said, I didn't come to destroy it. I'm I'm not annulling it. I'm not writing it off and saying, ignore it. I'm telling you that I am fulfilling it. And so now when you err, it's not severe punishment. It is forgiveness when you repent. It is grace and newness. It's being washed white as snow. It's me removing your sins as far as the east is from the west, burying them in the deepest sea by my work on the cross. Isn't that cool? So he fulfilled the judicial law and he fulfilled the ceremonial law and that he was the sacrifice that satisfied the standard of God. It says in the book of Hebrews that the blood of bulls and goats could never atone for sins. You see, all those sacrifices that Israel made day in and day out, week in and week out, month in and month out, year in and year out, they only provided a covering for sin. They had no power to remove sin, only a covering. So when the Jews sinned, he had to bring a sacrifice. It was just covered. He sinned again. He had to bring another sacrifice. He sinned again, another sacrifice. It was bloody and expensive and tedious. But Jesus Christ came and died once for all to fulfill the whole ceremonial law. That is why John the Baptist said in John chapter 1, when he was at the Jordan River and he saw Jesus, that's why he said, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. The Jew went, what? What? And John the Baptist said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away and the you what? Takes away. You mean covers. No, it takes away. Every other sacrifice they had known, according to the ceremonial law, only covered their sin. When Jesus Christ came, he fulfilled the ceremonial law, which points toward him. He died once and for all to take away the sins of the world. Amen. That's good. Amen. And finally, Jesus fulfilled the moral law in that he lived a perfect and sinless life because we couldn't. So that his perfect life could be credited to our account. So that we could be made righteous in him before a holy God. He fulfilled the moral law for us. He fulfilled the ceremonial law for us. And he fulfills the judicial law. So we don't practice those according to the Old Testament anymore. We do practice them. We do still seek to obey the moral law. But now when we fell because it's been fulfilled by Jesus, there's righteousness for us because he met the judicial requirements and paid the price for my sin. You see, that's, we're not under the law in that way anymore, but we're under the grace of God. We don't have to make the sacrifices anymore. Aren't you glad? I'm so glad as your pastor I'm not sacrificing junk up here. But there is a sacrifice that the New Testament Christian is called to give. It's mentioned in Hebrews chapter 13. Let us therefore now offer up the sacrifice of praise that is a fruit of lips to give thanks to his name. That is a New Testament sacrifice. As we see Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament, that now what we bring to the Lord is our sacrifice of praise. We bring worthy uh, uh, adoration and blessings to his name as we worship him. And so what we find from the words of Jesus is that he is the centerpiece of the Old Testament. And then that's the lens by which you need to read it this year. It'll give you a context. It gives you some handles. Okay, this all points toward Jesus. You're not going to understand every single word of it. But, But when you have that context that he fulfilled the moral and the ceremonial and the judicial and that it all points toward him, every single bit of it in its minutia points toward Jesus, it'll begin to make better sense toward you. And you're going to find Jesus in every single book of the Old Testament. He's there in every single one of them. In Genesis, he is the seed of the woman. In Exodus, he's a Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he's the atoning sacrifice. In numbers, he's a smitten rock. In Deuteronomy, he's a faithful prophet. And Joshua, he's a captain of the Lord's hosts. And judges, he's the divine deliverer. In the book of Ruth, he's a kinsman redeemer. And First Samuel, he's the anointed one. And Second Samuel, he's the son of David. In 1 and First and Second Kings, he's the coming king. In First and Second Chronicles, he's the builder of the temple. In the book of Ezra, he's the restorer of the temple. And Nehemiah, he's the restorer of the nation. And Esther, he's a preserver of the nation. And Job, he's a living redeemer. I know that my redeemer lives. In Psalms, he's the praise of Yisrael. In Proverbs, he's the wisdom of God. In Ecclesiastes, he's the great teacher. In the Song of Solomon, Jesus Christ is called the Pharisee of 10,000. In the book of Isaiah, Jesus Christ is a suffering servant. In Jeremiah, he's the maker of the new covenant. In Lamentations, he's a man of sorrows. In Ezekiel, he's the glory of God. In Daniel, he's the coming Messiah. In Hosea, Jesus is a lover of the unfaithful. In Joel, he's the hope of Yisrael. In Amos, he's he's the husbandman. And Obadiah, he's the savior. And Jonah, Jesus is the resurrected one. And Micah, he's the ruler of Israel. And Nahum, he's the avenger. And Habakkuk, he's the holy God. And Zephaniah, he's the king of Israel. And Haggai, he's the desire of nations. And Zechariah, he's the righteous branch. And in Malachi, he's the son of righteousness. But he's in the New Testament too. And Matthew, he's the King of Jews. And Mark, he's the servant of the Lord. And Luke, he's the Son of Man. And John, he's the Son of God. And Acts, he's the Ascended Lord. In Romans, he's the Believer's Righteousness. In First Corinthians, he's Sanctification. In Second Corinthians, he's the Sufficiency. In Galatians, he's our Liberty. In Ephesians, he's the Exalted Head of the Church. Amen. In Philippians, he's a Christian's Joy. In Colossians, he's the Fullness of Deity. In First Thessalonians, he's the Believer's Comfort. In Second Thessalonians, Jesus is glory. In First Timothy, he's a Christian's preserver. In Second Timothy, he's a rewarder. In Titus, he's a blessed hope. In Philemon, he's a substitute. In Hebrews, he's our high priest. In James, he's a giver of wisdom. In First Peter, he's a rock. In Second Peter, he's a precious promise. In First John, he's a life. Second John, he's a way. Third John, he's a truth. In Jude, he's an advocate. And in the Book of Revelation, he is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Amen. 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 Brothers and sisters, the whole book is about Jesus. And what we need in our lives is more Jesus. And you will find him right here every day waiting for you. Amen. 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 Let's worship the Lord. God, thank you. You are wonderful. Jesus, we truly want more of you. We truly want more of you. That's a cry of our heart right now. And we do want to offer up the sacrifice of praise, Jesus. You're so worthy to be exalted on the praises of your people. And so, God, we ask that for this year, as you venture with us through the Bible and reveal yourself to us, that you would just also increase our heart of praise and adoration. We want to join with the heavenlies. You're just so worthy, Lord. So right now, we we seek to just come back to the heart of worship that is you, Jesus. We seek to enthrone you on our lives and in our church. We want to see you high and exalted. Jesus, be the center. Be exalted in our midst, Lord Jesus. We humble ourselves under your mighty hand now. We humble ourselves before you and we worship you, Lord Jesus, because you are worthy.